The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Church family, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and this morning we're going to look at verses 32 through 34 as I preach this morning on the subject, Resurrection Reminders. Resurrection Reminders, Mark chapter 10, uh, verse number 32. There, the Bible says this in Mark giving an account of Jesus' uh, third prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection. The Bible says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished and those who followed him were afraid. Taking the 12 aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then he will rise after three days. I want to preach this morning on the subject, resurrection reminders, and we see here in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, that the gospel writer gives a third account of Jesus' prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection. You can find the first account in chapter 8 and the second in chapter 9. Here Jesus is telling his disciples for the third time, I will be killed and then I will get up from the grave. And Jesus' third reminder here reminds us that we sometimes need to be reminded of resurrection realities. And Jesus' prediction here shows us that there is great truth found within this great Christian event we call the resurrection. And as a result, we need to regularly be reminded of the spiritual truth the doctrinal realities of the resurrection. If we're not careful, we can relegate the resurrection to the realm of quaint tradition. It can become a cultural thing, a piece of cultural religion that has little practical benefit for our souls and our struggles in life. You see, many glibly and gladly tip their proverbial hat to this event while having little understanding of the practical, real-world, real-life benefit it brings their way. I believe by looking at the Word of God this morning, we can see several scriptural reminders that can give us life-altering truth. Sometimes we need reminders. Sometimes we need good explanation from God and from His Word. We are people who are prone to sometimes forget and misunderstand. I remember when Laura and I were living in uh, Cedartown, Georgia, I was clearing the lot that we lived on and there was a lot of pine trees, a lot of brush and about an acre. And I was clearing out the back half of that acre and in doing that, I got chiggers really bad. Boy, if you've ever been eaten up with chiggers, you know how horrible that can be. And I was at church one Sunday morning and walking around and I think some church members saw me kind of scratching. And this older couple said, what are you scratching about, preacher? What's wrong with you? And I said, well, I've got chiggers all over my legs. 
And he said, you know what will help chiggers is you need to get some kerosene and put it on you. Kerosene will take care of those chiggers. I thought they were talking about like right then and there. I went home that afternoon and got some kerosene and rubbed it all over my legs, all over my arms, thinking, got to kill all these chiggers on me. I came back to church that evening and was walking about shaking hands and that same couple said, boy, what's that smell? That's a kerosene you told me to put on me. The kerosene, it's on, I put it on just like you said. I'm hoping it will kill these chiggers. They said, that's not what we meant. We meant before you go in the woods to put the kerosene on you so the chiggers won't jump on you. And here I thought it would kill those chiggers on me. I misunderstood their words. I didn't understand what they were getting at. And sometimes life works like that. We, we can hear something but not fully comprehend the meaning. And I'm convinced this morning that the resurrection's like that for many of us. It's a thing to celebrate, but hear me this morning. God has some wonderful otherworldly truth that can build you up and help you. It's so important for us to grasp resurrection reminders. Question we have this morning is what do we need to remember about the resurrection? And I believe in our passage that we've just read, we see four great spiritual reminders that can give us hope and that can help us. Number one, we see this truth, and I'll say it like this the resurrection should affect my daily life. The resurrection should affect my daily life. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse number 32 in your Bible. There it says, They were on the road. Notice those words, on the road. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. These three words, on the road, are significant in Mark's gospel. If you were to look throughout the pages of the gospel of Mark, you would see that he uses this phrase over and over again, and he uses it in a strategic way. Mark 6, 8, Mark 8, 3, Mark 8, 27, Mark 9, 33 through 34, Mark 10, 17, Mark 10, 32 here, and Mark 10, 52. Mark uses this phrase on the road throughout the gospel to allude to the path of discipleship. Mark is making a reference to what it means to follow Jesus. We, we know this phrase, on the road, is significant because we see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22 and verse 4, Acts chapter 24 and verse 14, that the early church members, the early Christians, were called followers of the way. The followers of the way. And the Greek words translated the way are the same Greek words translated the road here. See, the early Christians were given this nickname as followers of the way because of the significance roads played in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was often walking the roads with his disciples following him. And it seems here that Mark is strategic in mentioning that the disciples were on the road or on the way with Jesus. They were following him. Mark is strategic in, in, in highlighting this fact because he wants to remind us that the resurrection is a great truth for disciples and for the process of discipleship. The resurrection 
is the seminal event in your relationship with Jesus. There is no followership of Jesus without resurrection truth. Here Mark shows us that the doctrines of the crucifixion and the resurrection are integral to our daily walk with the Lord. One cannot fully follow Jesus without a strong faith in the cross and in the empty tomb. Paul showed this to be true. The resurrection should affect our daily lives. When he spoke of his daily Jesus journey in Philippians 3.10, he said, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, are you a Christian this morning? Are you seeking to follow Jesus? Get this every day. You need resurrection truth to give you power over sin and your struggles. Paul mentioned this also in Romans chapter 8, verse number 10. Speaking to Christians and how they could have victory over sin. He said, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, here's a conclusion. Using those words, so then, Paul's drawing a conclusion based on resurrection truth. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Paul knew that the resurrection is something that is intended to change our lives. It gives us hope of life after death, but it also gives us hope in the here and now, help in the here and now. Get this, the resurrection is not just a historical event, although it is. It's not just a historical event. It's a practical experience as well. If you are a believer, if you have turned from sin and self and believed in Jesus Christ to be the son of God who lived, died, and was raised on your behalf, you have resurrection power in your soul through the Holy Spirit. So we aren't called to live in a way to try to earn God's approval. Instead, we're called to experience Christ's abundant life. The resurrection teaches us that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, we have life within us. Our Christian experience isn't all about what we can do for God to make him happy. It is what God did for us to make us holy. And if we want to live and victory over the desires of the flesh and life-dominating emotions. If we want to have peace, joy, and strength, and comfort, and security in the midst of the storms of life, we have to learn to gain strength from the Spirit of God. Know this, the power that accomplished the resurrection is available to you. You simply have to learn to live like Paul, Philippians 3.10, daily gaining strength by faith from this resurrection reality. One will never follow Jesus on the road or in the way as a disciple until he or she learns to live by resurrection power. So learn when you're sad or struggling to look to an empty tomb and know that God and the person of Jesus defeated death. Whenever you're worried and worn out in life, learn to take a spiritual time out and to preach resurrection realities to yourself. 
Whenever you're depressed or discouraged, whenever you're grieving, learn to remember that Jesus has defeated death and one day we will be with him in paradise. Whenever you're tempted and tested, know that the same power that got Jesus up out of the grave now lives in your soul and by faith in that power you can have victory and obedience over any vice, any addiction, any habit or any hang up. The resurrection should affect my daily life. Number two we see from Mark's words here that Jesus was determined to secure our deliverance. Jesus was determined. Thanks be to God. He was faithful and focused on God's will for his life. Mark tells us here in verse number 32 that Jesus was walking ahead of his disciples going up to Jerusalem. Now, we believe, he, we, we know by reading Mark's gospel that Jesus has left the northern area of Galilee where he most commonly ministered. And we believe he's traveling along the banks of the Jordan in the region of Perea here. Uh, we know according to Mark's next chapter in Mark 11, 1, a passage we looked, out li- looked at last week, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He will arrive. We will see the triumphal entry. We know so far his ministry has been based, Mark 1.14, Mark 1.38, in the region of Galilee. Now notice a strategic transition in Mark's gospel. Jesus isn't now around his hometown. He has purposefully set his sights on the holy city, David's city, Jerusalem. And here, Mark says they went up, and we know from the topography in this region that they literally went up. This was an approximate 20-mile trek. He's on his way from Jericho now. 20-mile trek from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jesus did it in a day, 20 miles. And in this trek, they climbed around 3,000 vertical feet. 20 miles one day, climbing 30,000 vertical feet. Now, let's just mark this. Jesus was a stud. I mean, he, 100% God, 100% man, the man part of him was well-conditioned. He walked over 20 miles this one day and climbed over 3,000 vertical feet. For any of you that do hiking or biking, you know that's a pretty good climb for one day. Jesus literally went up to Jerusalem. But with his literal ascent into the holy city, we can see a figurative ascent as well. Jesus went up in a metaphorical way. Mark's mention of Jerusalem here in our text seems to place emphasis on the fact that Jesus was fixated upon his purpose. Now notice how Mark depicts him here. He's walking ahead of his disciples. That was common in the first century for a rabbi to walk in front of his disciples to lead them. However, it seems that there's something more in Jesus' stance. He has a posture here of leadership. He is gladly and gallantly directing his followers to the cross. Our Lord Jesus knew, Luke 19.10, that his purpose in life was to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, as the prophet Isaiah had said, Isaiah 50, verse 7, 
was setting his face like a flint to do God's will. Luke tells us in Luke 9, 51, that here Jesus was determined to journey to Jerusalem. Jesus here, purposefully, with intention and determination and faithfulness to the Lord's will, heads to the holy city, Jerusalem, to face his foreordained fate. Notice there was no stroke of bad luck in Jesus' crucifixion. He did not suffer an untimely death. He came according to God's foreordained plan to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And he here shows in our text utter impeccable faithfulness to do the will of God. And what an example we have in Jesus what a model we have in our Lord. He willingly gave, down his, gave his life, laid down his life, and gave himself on our behalf. He was determined to do God's will. And he sets an example for us. May we likewise be surrendered to the Lord and faithful to do his will. May we cherish his word, his will, in his way, over our wishes, our whims, and our wants. Oh, the resurrection and the crucifixion remind us that we have a suffering servant and a Savior who surrendered himself to the will of the Father. And as Christians who bear his name, we should have a humble posture of submission and service as well. May we each look inward this morning and aim to be like Jesus. May we discern what God's will is for our life, Romans, for our lives, Romans 12, 1 through 2. May we look at our gifts and our resources and the time, talents, and treasures we have and ask, how can we use these for the glory of the Heavenly Father? May we submit to His will in all things. May we place His desires above ours. Jesus gives us a model here of how we should live surrendered to the will of the Heavenly Father, determined to do what God wants us to do. May we love him and live for him. May we be witnesses for him and may we be willing to do his will. So I ask you this morning, do you have any priorities or passions that stand in the way of God's will for your life? Look to Jesus, friend marching those 3,000 vertical feet to Jerusalem to pay for your sins and to secure your redemption? Do you have any habits or hobbies that seem to squeeze out the life of God and keep you from real worship and service? Look to Jesus with the face like flint, as Isaiah said, going to do the will of the Father on your behalf. Do you have any beliefs and bad attitudes that keep you from being a shining light for Jesus? Oh, consider your Lord willing to embrace and face hostility from sinners on your behalf and be willing to lay down your life as a living sacrifice for God so that he can get glory in this dark world so that people can know there is a God and there is hope in the person of Jesus. Jesus was determined to secure our deliverance. 
Number three this morning, we see this resurrection mind reminder. We must be on guard against spiritual forgetfulness. We may, must be on guard against spiritual forgetfulness. Now, if you're like me, you're always trying to, to battle against forgetfulness. Where did I put my keys? Where is my wallet? What appointments do I have today? I've tried to be real strategic in this. I have my calendar. I've also got this app called Things where I keep track of all the things I need to do. Now, we can all struggle with forgive, forgetfulness in a practical sense, but we can certainly struggle it with it in a spiritual sense as well. Look at how the disciples struggled with it in verse number 32. The Bible says as Jesus went ahead to Jerusalem, the disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. The word astonished here means to be startled. And Mark is intentional to use a passive voice verb to indicate that it is Jesus' act of walking in front of them to Jerusalem that has made them startled. So one group is startled and the other is afraid. The Greek word's the word from which we get our word phobia. And both of these emotions are depicted as being in the imperfect tense. That depicts a continual action in the past. It's not just like they have one momentary lapse of fear or astonishment as Jesus is walking in front of them. There's continual chatter, maybe murmuring and complaining. What is he doing? Why are we going to Jerusalem? They're scared. Jesus walks in solitude in front of them. There's an ongoing sense of restlessness behind him. Why? Well, if you were to study Mark's gospel, you would learn from Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that it was well known that the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that had their base of operation in Jerusalem, were plotting already to kill Jesus. If you were to study Mark's gospel, you'd learn in Mark 3, 22 and Mark 7, 1, that these folks had regularly sent spies to spy out Jesus' ministry. And knowing the death threats, knowing the spies, and knowing about the schemings, these people following behind Jesus in our current text are nervous because they know that going to Jerusalem means that Jesus will at best be apprehended. At worst, he'll be killed. As the caravan murmurs and shuffles their feet and begrudgingly moves behind Jesus, Jesus, Mark said, takes the 12 aside again and begins to tell them the things that would happen to him. He takes them aside, Mark says. The scene here is they're walking on the dusty road and Jesus turns around and, hey, I need the 12. The rest of y'all just hang out for a moment. Hey, boys, come here. Need to talk to you. He takes them off of the side of the path Remember from last week, we believe there's around 300,000 people making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So thousands of people likely on this road. And Jesus gets off to the side of the road so that others can pass. And he has a teaching moment with his disciples. Again, he tells them the things that will happen to him. Notice the word again. Jesus has to repeat himself. Because the disciples haven't 
heard him well. Two other occasions in Mark's Gospels, we've already referenced it, Mark 8, 31 through 33, Mark 9, 30 through 32, Jesus has predicted his pending crucifixion and resurrection. Now he is here a third time, having to tell them again. Now, lest we think that's so marvelous, haven't we had to be reminded of things before? Haven't you had to remind your children or your spouse of things before? And here Jesus gives this threefold reminder. It's necessary here when one considers the response to the disciples had to Jesus' previous announcements. Do you remember the first announcement when Jesus said, I'm going to die and then be raised? Peter flatly rebuked Jesus. No, it's not going to happen to you. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. On the second occasion, Jesus' prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection also fell on deaf ears. Mark refer, records, Mark 9, 32, they did not understand Jesus' statement. And they were afraid to ask him what he meant. And then after Jesus' second prediction, the disciples launched into a debate concerning who was the greatest of the twelve. And now here... With the third announcement, it likewise, we'll see, falls on deaf ears. Luke 18, 34, in its account of this third prediction, says the disciples understood none of these things. The disciples, they're forgetful. Jesus is right in front of them. Three times. Third time should be the charm. Three times telling about his crucifixion and resurrection. And they don't get it. They forget. They don't know what he means. Now, lest we be too harsh on the disciples, let's look in the mirror for a moment. Aren't we often like the disciples? Don't we so easily forget who Jesus is, what God's word says, what the resurrection means for our daily lives? We see, we know there is an ever-present temptation to have a form of religion that is empty of resurrection realities. It's easy to go through the motions of ritualistic religion without having a heart firmly focused on the truth of redemption. And know this, friends, when we act like these 12 and we forget the realities of the crucifixion and resurrection, we place ourselves on a road to emotional and spiritual ruin. We've got to make it our aim in life to regularly remember who we are, who God is, and what Jesus has done on our behalf. See, daily gospel truth in our souls will keep us stable, secure, strong, and satisfied in life. If we make it our aim to stand on guard against spiritual forgetfulness. If we make it our aim to regularly preach the resurrection to ourselves and set our hearts and souls on it, the Lord, through that type of faith, can give us peace and power to live for his glory in this fallen world. We've got to remember. This past week I had to 
uh, jump Laura's car. She's got a, a bad battery. I really need to replace the battery, but I've just found it easier this week to just jump it every time she needs to go somewhere. So pray for me. I need to replace the battery this week. But uh, this past week, one day I went out to jump it and I've got a little Nissan car and it's a five speed. And uh, so I go out there to jump the car and her car and I've got to start mine first. So I get in to start my car and I take it out of gear. So it's manual so I can start it. And then not thinking just out of course of habit, I put the brake down. And then I get out, close the door. And when I went to put the, the jumper cables on the battery in my car, I felt it nudge a little bit. I thought, that's funny. Next thing I know, it's rolling away from me. And Laura's looking like, what in the world is going on? And I had to, I had to bust a move and run. And I had to run around the back of the car as it's moving. And I knew this, once it gets out of the side of the garage, it's a straight dip down into the street, man. We're in trouble. And I, I get behind it right as it's exiting the garage and starting that slope down. By the time I get around to the driver's side the, and get the door open, it's rolling. It's taken off. The door hits me in the arm and I feel the, the, the thrust backwards. And I think, man, I'm about to get run over. But somehow I jumped in the car just in time and pulled up that emergency brake <laughs> right there in the driveway. I've got some black marks on the driveway if you want to drive by and see him, keep six feet of separation, though, please. All right. Um, you know, but hey, forgetfulness, mindlessness, going through the motions about got me in trouble. And the same thing can happen in a spiritual sense. If we go with the flow, man, in life and don't keep our eyes fixed on gospel glories and resurrection realities and the truth of Jesus we won't have the strength and satisfaction and security in our souls that we could have. Oh, I'm begging you, church, live in light of the resurrection and stand on the solid ground of the gospel. See in our text, resurrection reminders. Here's the last reminder we see. Number four, our text teaches us that God gave Jesus up as a sacrifice for us. And Jesus says in Mark 10:33, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death, then they will hand him over to the Gentiles." And in verse 34, "And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him, and he will rise after 3 days." Now, Jesus here speaks of himself being handed over. That's perhaps an allusion to Judas' upcoming betrayal, Mark 14, 43 through 52. But this act of being hand over, handed over also has a hint of providence. It points to the sovereignty of God and salvation. Though Judas was the human means of betrayal, the heavenly father had ordained in eternity past before time began that his son would serve as a sacrifice for sins. Jesus says he'll be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day who are already consenting and conspiring for his death. And he said they will condemn him to death. Jesus uses a, a legal word in the Greek language here. And it, it appears again in 
Mark 14, 64 to speak of how Jesus was legally condemned before the people on the charge of committing blasphemy. That's the loophole they found for crucifying our Lord. And then that decision led him to be handed over to Pilate for sentencing, Mark 15, 1. They had, as the text says at the end of verse 33, to hand him over to the Gentiles. Why? The Jews were strategic in doing this because they couldn't put anyone to death. The Roman pontus had to carry out capital punishment. Imperial officials were the only ones bestowed with the right of executing a death sentence. And then Jesus describes the way he would suffer on our behalf in verse 34. He says, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Notice here four acts, mocking, spitting, flogging, killing. And Mark will later mention them all. He'll talk in Mark 15, 16 through 18 about the first, mocking. Spitting is seen in Mark 15, 19. The flogging, beating with a whip, will occur in Mark 15, 15. And then the killing of Jesus will be seen in Mark 15, 20 through 37. Jesus' words here concerning his death all allude to the fact that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Miracles of miracles. Uh, Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies given in the Old Testament. And the words he's just shared in Mark 10, 34 show that he was the fulfillment of Psalm 22, 6 through 8, written hundreds of years before the psalmist prophesied of the suffering servant, saying, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. Jesus also fulfilled prophecy. No other world religion has this type of fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53.3 says of the suffering servant that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Interestingly, supernaturally, all four actions listed by Jesus here in Mark 10.34 are seen in Isaiah's prophecies of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 3, 5, 8, 9, and 12. So we see that although these cruel, barbaric, ungodly acts were performed by the hands of men, all of them were generated by the eternal plan of the heavenly Father, Revelation 13, 8, Genesis 3, 15, and 16. The suffering servant of Uzziah proclaimed, Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who beat me, and I gave my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. And see the truth from God's word here. And Jesus indicates that he is going to willingly lay down his life on our behalf. This was not bad luck or a stroke of fate. This was the eternal plan of God to save you and to save me. Sinners, imperfect, holy, unholy, broken, fallen people who can't have a relationship with God on their own and need a go-between. 
Jesus did all this on our behalf. He took his sin upon our sin, excuse me, upon himself so that if we will believe and trust in him as a substitute on our behalf, we will be forgiven and washed clean of all of our sin and he'll come by a spirit to live within our soul and we'll have the ability because we're clean to live in the new heaven and the new earth. They mocked him, spit on him, flogged him and killed him But that's not the end of the story. Jesus says simply, and he will rise after three days. I remember preaching in a small town near Bainbridge, Georgia, when I was in college, and I was always uh, seeking feedback on my preaching in those days. And I'd been sent to preach at this church out in the country, and I preached my sermon, and I had an old preacher man who really retired from preaching but took over this church and was over 80 years of age and still preaching and trying to lead this church. And afterwards, I asked this man and his wife, do you all have any input or feedback you'd give me on my sermon? And he said, yeah, I do. You really messed up. Wow, okay, I thought I did pretty good. What'd I do wrong? You talked all about Jesus dying for us, but you left him dead. You forgot to mention the end of the story, preacher. Don't ever do that again. Three days later, he got up from the grave. And we know as believers that the crucifixion is not the end of the story. Sure, with the crucifixion, Jesus paid the penalty your sin, my sin deserves. And he literally, physically died. But that's not enough. He had to get up from the grave. Why? To prove that he was God. To prove that his sacrifice was efficacious. And to demonstrate that he gives real life, abundant life, everlasting life to all who place their faith in him. So get this, Jesus lived on your behalf. He lived the perfect life you could never live. Jesus died on your behalf. He paid the penalty your sin deserves. Death, alienation, separation from God. But get this also, Jesus got up from the grave on your behalf so that you can have the abundant life of Christ living within your heart and so that you can have the everlasting life of Christ one day in the new heaven and the new earth. Never forget this resurrection reality. God gave up Jesus on your behalf. He lived, died, and was raised for you. You can have the righteousness of Jesus in your life because Jesus lived for you. You can be forgiven of sin. Your guilt and your shame and all of your insecurity can be wiped away because Jesus died for you. And you can have everlasting life in heaven and abundant life in the here and now because Jesus defeated death and because there's an empty tomb, remember the resurrection. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.